Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Food Fight uh, podcast coming from EIT Foods Venture Summit in Lisbon, in Portugal. Lovely. I'm Matt Eastland. And I'm Anique Verween, and we both work for EIT Food, Europe's biggest innovation ecosystem that will make the food system more healthy, more sustainable, and more trusted. Um, so over the course of um, this series of podcasts, we've been inviting different guests from the food industry to talk about how we can tackle some of the world's biggest societal problems when it comes to food and fight for a better food future. Yeah, and I'm really delighted today that Anik here is actually standing in for my usual co-host, Lakshmi, who's actually on maternity leave and actually just gave birth. So uh, really, really lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Really, really lovely to have Anik here. So she's super well connected to startups, as you all know. So today we're going to be tackling a quite provocative subject titled, Is Sugar the New Tobacco? So Anik, what do we mean by this? Well, we all know even deep in our heart. Overconsumption of sugar is bad for us, right? But eating too many sweet things doesn't only rot your teeth. Eh? I have here a nice list of scientific facts. Overconsumption of sugar and high-calorie foods is associated with lifestyle diseases such as obesity, metabolic syndrome, and type 2 diabetes. World Health Organization mentioned that child obesity is one of the most serious global public health challenges this century. 124 million children and adolescents overweight or obese today, one out of five, and that number will rise up to 250 million by 2030. And then another one, research is showing that obesity now causes more cases of the first most common cancers than smoking. So it's a huge problem. We need to change our habits, that's for sure. Absolutely. So is sugar the new tobacco? How serious is the threat? And what can we do as a food industry to address the balance? So it's time to introduce our lovely guests. I'm delighted to welcome on stage experts from three areas of the food industry to talk on this very subject. So our first guest is Karine Delafay, who joins us from the world-renowned food and beverage company Danone, where she's director of something called the Sugar and Sweetness Acceleration Project. Hi, Hi. Karine. Hi. And next up, we have Tom Simmons, founder and CEO of STEM, a company developing natural plant-based sugar substitutes to help manufacturers reduce the sugar content of food products. Hello, Tom. Hello. And finally, we have Ilan Samish, founder and CEO of Amai Proteins. Amai Proteins is a tasty designer protein company where he focuses on proteins as a mainstream sugar substitute with the sweetest protein in the world, which I'm really looking forward to hearing more about. So hello, Ilan. So, and just as a first way of introduction and kicking this off, a question to each of you. How did sugar became a point of focus for you and your work? And ladies first. Okay. Um, I've always dreamed being a, a doctor, but I can't see blood. So I turned to food because it's our first medicine. And uh, I'm glad to be in a company who is really uh, willing to drive a healthier drinking and eating habits. And uh, recently I uh, joined this team to show that uh, sugar, yes, is a tension, but there are very positive and innovative ways to answer to sugar, not only through sweetness solutions, but also through reinventing the taste, revolutioning the taste to the uh, unsweet taste. Okay, thank you. Tom, what is your way into the sugar world? In a previous life, I was an academic. I was 10 years in academia, half of that in Edinburgh, the most recent half in Cambridge, and started the company in Cambridge after that. And the insight that we 
work on to try and address this problem is not that sugar, excess sugar consumption per se is bad, but the consumption of the wrong type of sugars is the real issue. So we don't help address the problem by developing a brand new ingredient never before seen by mankind. Instead, what we do is we go to the most abundant source of sugar in nature, which is actually in dietary fiber. So I, I spent my academic career working on dietary fiber, plant carbohydrates. Most people don't know that dietary fiber is actually composed almost entirely of sugars. So what we do is we take dietary fiber, we fragment it down in a similar way to how bacteria in your gut uh, fragment down when they feed on, on fiber. And we find that we can take fiber and make it uh, behave like sugar in food and yet still behaves like fiber in your body. So we can make cookies, cakes, ice creams, etc., which taste like they have cane sugar in them, but instead of causing sugar spikes, they actually attenuate blood sugar levels like fiber does. Instead of causing excess cravings after eating them, they actually fill you up like fiber does. So we do this by yeah, taking fiber-based sugars instead of conventional cane sugar, which, as I say, is the most abundant source of sugar in, in the world, actually. Okay, thanks, Tom. Ilan, how did sugar become so important for you? I became obsessed with sugar as a child. My twin sister always ate less than me, and she was chubby. I was skinny as a kid, no longer skinny. But I felt bad if I ate something with sugar, and I do love sugar. And then later on, when I put out what became the world's leading book in computational protein design, I thought, despite the fact I have a comfortable academic career, I have here a method which, together with biotechnology and food technology, can cure the food we eat. And from my point of view, being in academia, working on another publication is very nice, but if I have the possibility to cure the food we eat rather than the diseases that come out of it, this is a much bigger mission. So I left academia and I established and founded Amai Proteins, just a small legal disclosure before continuing. We do have fee-bearing agreements with Danon, PepsiCo, Ocean Spray, and some other companies, so just to put that in place. And in Amai, we take proteins and we fit them to the mass food market, including sensory profile, cost, and uh, stability, stability in the broad sense as to pH, temperature, acidity, and so on. And we are making, whether it is soda or yogurt or ketchups that you're all welcome to taste in the Amai booth. Amai is sweet in Japanese. Fantastic. Thanks, Alan. So just to open the question for this whole debate then. So why have we become so addicted to sugar? You know, how has sugar become so popular over the years? Obviously, the sweet taste uh, is an innate taste, but I think also that's the challenge point, is that uh, I think there is an opportunity also to solve the issue, reinventing the taste, which is not only the sweet taste, but reinventing the pleasure, coming away and marching away from uh, this, uh, what you called, addiction. And uh, Tom, do you agree? Are we addicted, or is it not actually addiction, it's just something we've gotten used to over the years? Innately, humans just like the taste of sugar. One of the reasons why sugar is really so pervasive in the, in the diet is because it's so cheap nowadays and, and so it can just performs a whole range of different functions and you'll find it in places really you would never have expected even for promoting sweetness. So, I mean, a, a big challenge to deal with is how to find something to take sugar's place when it's so cheap and so abundantly available. And Alain, I see you nodding your head there. Do you agree with Tom? 
Oh yes, I agree with Tom and I will go one step further because sugar began 4000 uh, BC as pig food in the Far East, but only in 15 AD we, we began to uh, use it all over and uh, sugar is a sign of energy and a sign of something good. Unlike bitter receptors, which are a sign of something toxic, and we have 25 receptors for bitter, but only one for sweet taste. And this sweet taste actually activates in the prefrontal cortex of the brain some of the same dopamine receptors which are activated in other um, pleasurable activities that we do. So there is definitely a component of addiction in sugar. Okay, but it's not, it's not for everybody, right? So, I mean, even you look at the audience here, about 30%, 40% of people say they don't have a sweet tooth. So, is it something we learn as a child to love sugar and then we, we change out of that? It's true, as you said, Tom, that there is an innate uh, appealing and preference for sweet taste. But what we observe also is that in the um, early months and years, this, uh, this preference is evolving and it's really influenced by the categories that we expose the child to and I think it was the uh, mention from a vegetable uh, exposition this morning. So uh, yes, uh, we have an innate preference but it evolves and it is really influenced by the societal context and from uh, the education. So I think it put the question of the early uh, healthy taste uh, education. Wonderful, thank you. Okay, so indeed that uh, you mentioned the word wrong sugars or bad sugars. Do you think on a general level that the public is well enough educated to spot sugars in their food? Because if you look at the labels, you take every project. It starts with the simple ones, right? Brown sugar, palm sugar, honey, everybody knows them. Then you have terms like fructose, sucrose, maltose, already getting a bit more complicated. And then you end up with hydrolyzed starch, coconut blossom nectar, barley malt syrup, which are even much harder to spot from a consumer perspective. So are people well equipped enough, educated enough to know what's good, what's bad, and at what quantity, Elan, do you have an opinion on that? Here we have an evolving change because sugar has in labeling 61 different names. And the public is not sufficiently educated about it on one hand, and on the other hand, only recently there is a consensus of the scientific community following mega studies about the fact that sugar is public enemy number one when it comes to health. Now the FDA in 2014 asked to change the labeling in order to better educate the public and now on January 1st, 2020, for the first time there will be mandatory labeling to show the amount of sugar per serving size and the relative recommended daily dose, which is around nine teaspoons for men and six for women, and the 12 ounce cola has more than that. So there is a change in the regulator when the market is not perfect, is putting additional regulations to do that. Today you have 14 countries which put tax over sugar, which again is a sign of coming with an intervention from the government, from the regulator, to help us have a better food. And from the other point, Credit Suisse, in 2013, they put out a report saying that in order to solve the world health crisis, the best way is to do sugar tax and other measurements coming from the regulators. So there is a big change 
and we expect to have less sugar consumed by the public in the upcoming years. Karina, do you think that from Danone's perspective, are you equipping the, your consumers with all the right information so they can make these sorts of better choices? Enabling the consumer to make a healthier choice is really an obsession. We are really committed to uh, all the labeling systems, which allow the consumer to really understand uh, what is labeled and what it has in its food. But I would like to come back to your point on the diversity of sugars. Indeed, there are various technological reasons to use some of these, uh, these sugars. And also, there are some um, different consumer tensions and needs, which makes us choose different sugars and sweetening solutions, let's say. So I think also one way to answer the tension and to enable people to choose healthier sugar-reduced uh, product is really to choose carefully the type of sweetening systems that we use, being more natural, depending on the acceptance, being artificial in some cases. Um, so it's really a question of uh, offering a portfolio of solutions, healthier sugar-reduced solutions, but also unsweet solutions. Yeah, and that's a really interesting point. You mentioned like healthier alternatives here, and Tom at STEM, you're focusing on natural plant-based sugar alternatives. So what are they and you know, are they better for our health? Let me, let me first say something about the question you asked Elon. The, like, so it's, it's certainly true that consumers broadly do not understand exactly what's going on, but it's, it's not restricted to sugar. This is, this is, a, this is pervasive across all, all food. And partly the, the solution to that is education, but partly it's, it's, it's an inherently hard problem, which it's one of the most complex sciences out there, and you need, it needs to be described to consumers not only in a way that the layperson on the street will understand, but also the layperson when they are about to make a purchasing decision in a checkout when emotions ride over, over logic. So it's super hard trying to find an easy way to describe a hard problem. Uh, so one of the things that people don't understand is sugar. Another thing that people don't understand is, is, is fiber. And actually, back when fiber was first being defined, this was, this was uh, an issue. Uh, people observed that uh, the Western world we are suffering from a whole range of non-communicable diseases. The things that were, uh, this is back in the sort of 60s, still these things are still the main killers to us now, heart disease, cancers, uh, et cetera, unlike pathogenic diseases, which, which we used to uh, all die from. And, a debate at the time was whether excess sugar or absence of fiber was the cause for that. So what we decide, what we do is, um, and, and uh, the, the long story short is actually, it seemed to be the case, the absence of fiber is really the main issue behind sugar. Hence why uh, good dietary guidance is not to stop eating fruit simply because it has sugar in it. You want to eat uh, fruit has fiber as well as other vitamins. Um, yeah, our, our solution is to, is to use fiber as the most abundant source of, of, of sugar in the natural world. There's far more sugar in dietary fiber out there in nature than there is in this uh, squeezed juices from a, from a cane plant. It's a really trivial source of sugar, really. So we take sugars from there. It's, it's stuff that your body, if you're healthy, should already be consuming anyway, but we present it to you in a way that it can perform like sugar in a food product. So it performs like a fiber in your body. Yeah. Ilan, you do it totally different, right? You're focusing on protein different than the fiber to provide sweetness. So it also has a different fraction. So can you tell me a little bit more about Amai protein and what you call the sweetest protein in the world? So in Amai, we decided to look into nature and ask what is the solution that nature is giving us. And in the jungle, the mighty jungle, the sugary apple from the Garden of Eden is no longer good enough because everyone has apples. So you have fruits from West Africa 
to uh, Malaysia and China along the equatorial belt, you have fruits which are sweetened by sweet proteins. They adhere to the sweet receptors just like sugar, but then are digested just like a protein with no remains other than essential amino acids that go into our body. Now, if this is so good, how come we don't use them? We actually do use in the market, there is one protein, it has an E number, and you can buy it, but there is a very high cost and scarcity of it. So we looked at the issues, the challenges of these proteins, which is cost and supply, stability, pH, temperature, acidity, and the sensorial profile. And by applying computational protein design coupled to production by fermentation, by precision fermentation, by yeast, just like you brew beer, we make proteins, and we made a protein that is stable for pasteurization, which has a very good sensory profile, as the people in Danone and other places claim, and that you can put in very small amounts, and because we are 10,000 times sweeter than sugar, one teaspoon of our protein replaces 50 kilograms of sugar. Consequently, we are 90% cheaper than sugar in sweetness units. Amazing. Uh, okay, and Corrine, so you've heard from the two guys on the stage here, we're talking about alternatives based on fiber, alternatives based on proteins. From Danone, uh, you know, are you actually taking these sorts of uh, alternatives and are you, are you using them? Are you accelerating this? Indeed, our obsession is really um, to bring health through food. Uh, so uh, we are really open uh, at searching to the different solutions which are emerging. And that's the reason why we are partners of the EIT and we are collaborating with Amai, with Alcion, he's in the room also. Uh, so yes, uh, we are here to accelerate these initiatives, bringing also user perspective, because I think we need to focus on the fact that when people are looking for sugar, they are looking for sweetness, they are looking for pleasure in food. So again, we need technical solutions, but we need also to use the right technical solution depending on the right usage. Not everybody likes the same level of sweetness. You said it. We have very different phenotypes, and people want different origin for their sweetness. Some people don't want sweetness. So, uh, yeah, we are very focused on having a portfolio of solutions, all healthier, sugar-reduced, or unsweet. And uh, really, we are keen on uh, accelerating all these technical solutions. And the solutions depend also on the metrics, not the same solution for the beverage than uh, in a dairy product. Some of them are not applicable and soluble uh, solutions. So yeah, our role is really to accelerate the portfolio of solutions. One nuance to this, we haven't said that, is not only do we have separate ways to solve the sugar problem, it actually leads to very different market opportunities. So the way, the way I pitch uh, why, why, what's so great about STEM, why STEM is the best company ever, is, uh, is that the, we, we describe the biggest problem in the food industry is not just broadly sugar reduction or replacement per se as a whole level. But the, the biggest unsolved problem in the food industry is how to reduce sugar in food products as opposed to drink products. There's very distinct functionalities that are needed to replace sugar in these different spaces. And, Sugar-free drinks have been on supermarket shelves in Europe and America for, for 30 years now, and there's been lots of iterations on trying to find ways to improve these over the last 30 years. But to some significant extent, it, the problem was, was addressed 30 years ago. There were successful sugar-free drinks uh, on a market. The same thing is not the case in any other aisle if you walk down a supermarket. Cookies, cakes, biscuits, chocolates, donuts, pastries, ice creams, anything where there's a solid component as opposed to a liquor component, conventional sweeteners can't function because sugar makes a cake 
taste sweet, but it also makes it look like a cake and feel like a cake. It has physical properties which dictate the way these food products are formed. And really, if you want to replace those sort of applications, you actually need a, a, a plant-based sugar probably to get there. So that, that's, that's where we think we really slot in. And actually, that's where the majority of British people, for sure, I'm sure it applies to most of the Western world, consume more of their added sugar in, in these sort of food products than in, than in beverages anyway. Tom and, and Corinne, just to relate to what both of you said, so Tom, obviously, we need more than one solution. And while we give something which is extremely sweet, hyper-sweet, we need also to solve the bulking agent, whether it is through the STEM solution or through the Dumatok solution, another Israeli company that is here. And today, the biggest dairy company in the U.S. filed for bankruptcy. The world is undergoing an earthquake. And if you want to stay in this world, you have to adapt. And in the case of Danone, we didn't have to go to them, but Damien Jordan, their scouter, came to us and asked us, can we work with you? How can we work with you? Give us some samples. We want to evaluate it. We know you're a startup. We will pay you a little bit of money, and we will evaluate it and give you a report. And if it is good, this may help you get more funding in order to go without any exclusivity or something like that. And I think that companies that embrace open innovation and the partnerships between the 100,000 uh, employee company and what we were then three people company, now we are much bigger, nine people, and in a year we'll be 20. But I think the EIT is food is exactly about that, about the partnership between the small and the big companies. Okay. And do you think that, I mean, you're listening to you talk, I'm wondering, do you think that the food industry is doing enough to reduce, like, sugar consumption generally? It's never enough. I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> Some people say we have amazing achievements, but for me it's never enough because we always want to go more. I think that things are changing, maybe not in the fast enough pace. For example, the FDA regulations and sugar labeling were offered five years ago. It took five years to implement them, but there is a big change. And right now, you have to understand that in the past, there was a diet of low calorie, low fat. And indeed, the population has cut from 40% fat calories to 30%. But only recently, following mainly the Pure study and other studies, Pure study, 135,000 people, seven years, 2017, came out with saying that sugar is the number one health threat for humanity. And the regulators and the food companies are now embracing this. Today, 8% of the new products have sugar reduction claims. Today, you have sugar tax. And today, from the other side, according to an Innova report, 80% of the people look at the labeling. In the past, people did not look at the labeling. So there is a change. Is it fast enough or not? That's a question you can always tackle. But the understanding that sugar must go down is slowly infiltrating into all. And you can see the tobacco. I mean, we are here in a food fight about tobacco. Tobacco, according to the uh, Department of Human Health and Services in, in the U.S. government, in 1976, 29% of all 12th graders had a daily cigarette. Today, this number has went down to 3.6%, actually data from two years ago. But it took quite a few years to understand how bad tobacco is, 
and to go down with it, including some companies who try to continue with it, some not. The same goes here. Some food companies a few years ago said a calorie is a calorie. Today we understand there are good calories or are bad calories, and sugar are not good calories. So it's not only the calorie, it's also the spike of sugar. It is also the insulin. It is also the effect on the microbiome, liver, and kidneys. So I think there is a change, not fast enough. Okay, great. So. I mean, you're talking there about it's taken such a long time, or you think it's going to take a long time to get there. So a question that we often ask on the Food Fight podcast is, you know, if we could rip up the food industry and start again and design like this utopian food system, what would be like the thing or the first thing that you do to solve some of sugar's biggest problems? I mean, like, would you even include sugar from the outset? Like, Tom, what do you think? Uh, it's, a, it's a monster question. <laughs> well, of course, we'd all be using STEM, of course. STEM well, sugar, obviously. First and foremost. Um, the strange thing about what we do right now is, in our space, we're developing uh, yeah, plant sugars with the aim of replacing cane sugar. And, we, and we're, trying to, we're trying to really mimic things that people recognize as food products out there. So maybe we might try and do something without cane sugar in the first place. And in the world we're living, we really have to make things that people recognize as things that they conventionally eat, cakes, cookies, biscuits. We can't come out with a strange-looking thing that doesn't know, no one knows what it is. Um, maybe we'd do that, possibly. Okay, great. And Corinne, what do you think? What would, what would you do if you could start again? What I'm excited about in this situation is that um, it's an opportunity to reinvent really the food culture and to restart a culinary culture. What if we can't have sugar? Well, let's cook differently. Let's eat differently. It's much more exciting to say, okay, let's reinvent sensorial experience, which are so exciting that people won't even think that there is no sugar nor sweetness in it. Yeah. And that's really exciting. That's innovation. And I think this is what we are speaking today. Great. And Elan, do you agree? Fully agree. I think that our body does not need sugar. We know how to produce sugar. We need nine essential amino acids, two fatty acids, which are essential. We don't need sugar. But we enjoy sugar, and sugar is a cheap substance. Consequently, sugar came more and more as it became more and more cheap, and high fructose corn syrup, which was introduced by PepsiCo and, and Coca-Cola in 1984, is even cheaper and even less healthy. But we can reverse this. In Israel, by the way, when one of the foreign companies, without mentioning names, came with a yogurt with much higher sugar, people began to move to it because it was more enjoyable. The other companies that was beforehand in Israel with yogurt had to put up an increased amount of sugar in order to stay in the competition. So I think with this situation, education has never solved a problem of substance of abuse. You need the regulators, you need education, you need everything together, and you need the understanding that the market is shrinking. And today, and this is a known secret of the industry, the beverage market, which is accountable for 47% of the added sugar, is actually shrinking. People drink less beverages. People are moving to water. SodaStream, which is known for sustainability and less sugar, was bought by PepsiCo for $3.2 billion because it has a better healthy beverage. So I think we are now in the process. On one hand, you see some companies that will go bankrupt. On the other, you will see places 
that will adapt to the new situation. It begins always with the higher socioeconomic folks and will slowly infiltrate to the lower socioeconomic uh, part, which needs it the most. Amazing. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks yeah. So I think with this summary of an utopian world without sugar or with less sugar, maybe it's time to open up questions to the audience. Are there any questions? Okay, so the question is, uh, you know, do you think the sugar tax is working and are there any ways to make it better? Anyone want, who wants to tell? There is no question sugar tax is working. It's working in three different ways. Number one, the lower socioeconomic um, population because the price is going up is buying less. Number two, there is a buzz, there is a PR that sugar is not good for you, consequently it is being taxed. And number three, there is a massive reformulation of a lot of products to go below the sugar tax. This has happened now, I mean, Chile, Israel, Israel, within two years, 1,500 products immediately got reformulated because they didn't want not even a tax, but just a, a red labeling. And if you had things where you could do some reformulation and go below this red labeling, companies did it. So it's a mutual synergistic effect of education, PR, and cost, and reformulation of the industry, and that's the only way to fight sugar. And Corinne, do you agree? Yeah. What I would say is, um, I think it's important to anticipate. I think our role is to take commitments before we come to the tax level, to the tax situation, and that's the reason why we took commitments on nutritional targets on sugar from 2005. So um, I think really the point is anticipating. Our role in the industry is to be ahead of this kind of uh, solution, let's say, and uh, I think that will be the most favorable situation for the food industry and for our user and also for the wallets of the consumer. So um, that would be a much more positive approach, I would say, and we are committed to this, and we will review, and we still review our, our guidelines and additional guidelines, and we adapt them to always go further, as, as you said, we need to go uh, further each time and to do even more. Thank you, guys. Thank you. I think we're almost there, right? Yeah, we're so almost out of time. One final question, and I will look at you first, Karim. What do you think are the most exciting and important innovations that are happening at the moment in the future of food and sweetness? I first ask you because they might just sell their own company, right? <laughs> we share an experience. I mean, I was last Friday with some chiefs, culinary chiefs, no, in a kitchen, and we asked them, guys, teach us, help us to develop unsweet dairy pleasure product. And what we tasted was just amazing. So yeah, I think the future is the creativity in the culinary experience, the creativity for taste. That's the future, I think, of a solution. Amazing. And, and Tom, other than the amazingness of other STEM, STEM. What, uh, you know, what, what else are you really excited about in this space? Elan's doing something very interesting. Um, one of the nice things about our situation right now is there's a whole load of stuff happening in food, but actually in some of the specific problems we're addressing, there's actually not a, a huge amount of stuff happening, specifically on the sort of bulking sugar thing. There's almost nothing around. But yeah, there, there is a, there's a quite a few interesting things happening on the, on the sweetening side of which Elon's doing some great work. So everyone, we're completely out of time. So I just wanted to say, Corinne Delafay, Elan Samish, and Tom Simmons, absolute 
pleasure to have you on the panel today. Where can people listening find out more about what you do? Our website is stemsugar.com. That's probably the best place. Okay, Corinne? Obviously, on the Danone website, we have our commitments and we have our open innovation team. If we are any startup willing to collaborate even more on this sweeting solution with us. Thank you. And Elan? My Proteins has a website. Of course, some of the newer things are still not there because they're under the radar, but you have a lot of press, and the amount of press represents how people are fascinated and want new solutions that will give you a healthy sweetness, which is what we are trying to do. Excellent, Thanks, thank you. So before we really wrap up, Matt, what have you learned today? Sugar, the new tobacco? Um, well, for me, I think it's obviously a really complex issue. It sounds to me like maybe sugar's got a little bit of a bad reputation, and it's encouraging to see some of the amazing things that people across the food industry are doing to, you know, like alternatives. So that's been like a big takeaway for me. I think I'm positive. Good. I'm positive as well. I think it's great that to have companies like STEM and AMI who take challenges, turn them into opportunities. I also think it wasn't mentioned today, but it raised lots of interest also from investors. So there's definitely things happening there. So yeah. I'm an optimist here as well. Great stuff. So all that's left to say, everyone, is uh, thanks for joining us for the Food Fight. Please do hit subscribe and let us know what you think of the conversation. So you can find out more about EIT Food and our programs and activities at eitfood.eu or hit us up on social media using the hashtag EITFoodFight. Uh, so from me, Matt Eastland. And Annick Verween. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.